Hello. 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 <laughs> so how uh, how's everything with your kids? Oh my gosh. Uh, my kids. My kids are fantastic. We we had a uh, a pre uh, podcast meltdown um, as I was uh, trying to take them to school um, because. Uh, Jack, who is um, maybe the world's worst eater um, and, and eats like 15 total foods, um, decided that the cereal that we gave him this morning for breakfast was incorrect. And he decided that it was the milk was sour, although I had purchased the milk and this was the first thing that it had been poured into. I purchased milk like 12 hours ago. Um, and so he, uh, spit his cereal back into his bowl and made a big, big deal about it. Um, which resulted in, uh, a standoff, a, um, I would, I would say like, like a Clint Eastwood movie style standoff, uh, <laughs> between who is going to eat what and when and how, um, which, uh, which then led to, uh, a late, a late drop off, which, uh, in turn led to a late start of the podcast. You got to ask yourself, punk. <laughs> oh my gosh! And do I have do I have one cereal or do I have zero cereals? Exactly. How many cereals? How many cereals do I have? Well, in in, def- in defense of your son, um, and I was I have to say I was not there at the time. Uh, but in, in defense, <laughs> this is not your, not fair. In defense of your son, um, I have purchased milk um, that has that has come from the store pre-soured. So oh, the first question oh. for you is, did you, did you provide additional, uh, you know, did you do additional investigation to satisfy yourself that the milk yes. is in fact not sour? By the, the due diligence was yes. uh, extended uh, by two other um, verification sources, uh, <laughs> both Sam and uh, the lovely Danny um, tested it. I, I did not test it for myself. Uh, mainly because uh, I don't I don't drink milk. Uh, uh-huh. I have uh, um, I, I think I may have some uh, lactose intolerance or something. It gives me mix gives me uh, uh, extra extended time in the bathroom. Well, what <laughs> what height? Thanks, thanks for sharing. You're, uh, you're welcome. Well, what the offer I would have made is well, um, I tell you what, we'll throw away this uh, this this cereal because you think the milk is sour, and now your choices are uh, you can have dry cereal or you could have cereal with water. <laughs> Well, that so that while that was not the option I gave, okay. what, what was the the concerning part of the exchange was how he um, decided to tell us that uh, that it was sour by taking an entire mouthful of cereal and spitting it back into his bowl, which really was the the issue, not um, you know, and, and and that once once it was verified that it was not sour. And he had a second bowl um, distributed to him uh, with the same milk from this milk from the same source. He he immediately decided, oh no, I guess it wasn't sour at all. I might have made a mistake, um, which uh, which then led to um, you know that was made, made things maybe even worse uh, because uh, of his his reaction because he did not want to eat cereal this morning. Well, at least the first bowl. <sighs> Don. Yeah, kids. kids, man. Kids. Am I right? Am yeah. I right? Well, see, the good news is uh, is that your kids are now safely out of the house, uh, whereas my dogs are still here, and um, they uh, uh, they, they yeah. are they are playing um, uh, uh, sit on the blanket, and the other dog uh, pull the blanket. So that's what's <laughs> that's going actually, on in the background here. I have uh, there's a dog right here, uh, I, right I, inside me. I heard him yeah. a minute ago. Yes, he he's very upset that I am talking not to him. Like I'm. <laughs> 
I may have to do this entire podcast looking directly into his eyes. So he's so he, talking to him. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Because yeah, so he's he's currently uh, laying on my foot. Huh. Um, yeah. So so we got so we got dogs. We got kids. Um, I've been away, and then I got to leave again today, which I think is gonna. I mean, it's killing me. Um, we we had uh, hockey tryouts this weekend for Jack. So we, a high stress air time of this is his first uh, process through the travel hockey world mm. where where people get cut and people make a team and and people are moving teams and so I'm uh, I'm just looking forward to uh, um, having this week over and then getting back to the calm world of um, uh, selling and buying and moving houses. <laughs> well, I. <laughs> I have to share on the on the subject of getting cut. Uh, so I uh, I played um, uh, sports as a kid, not not very well or or very many, um, which I think we've talked about before. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, it was came as a shock to me that there were actually sports teams uh, where you could be cut. And uh, I I was not. I think it was I tried out for. I guess I must have tried out for for in high school. I must have tried out for JV lacrosse. And uh, I was, I was, uh, I, I did not like sports after that because uh, I was not a very good sports ball player, and um, I was cut. And uh, I, that just somehow just didn't seem right to me that one that one could be cut. Right, right, right. Hey, I um, in my entire life, I, I've tried out for for multiple teams, um, and I only ever um, I think made one team that I could have been cut from. Uh, and it was uh, uh, also junior varsity basketball uh, when I was in eleventh uh, grade, and so I I was just impressed that Jack went through this process and and did not like he he made made the team and there wasn't you know um, we we didn't go through the the cutting process and as we were driving home yesterday I was like you know that I'm really proud of you because I've never. Uh, gone through a tryout and, and made a team in in my life. So well, that's that's not completely true. Uh, both both you you and I uh, survived uh, the ultimate test of uh, being cut from the team, <laughs> which is called tenure. Well, okay, fair enough. Yeah, the not, not a sports team. ball team, but uh, right. but, but it is uh, it is sort of the ultimate uh, <laughs> test uh, of, 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 of 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 being cut from something. So that's true. That's true. Yeah, we we just excel in, in different things. Yes, exactly. I, I um, when I was in um, university and I, I mean, I played a lot of recreational hockey and, and so I still played. Um, I mean, I played hockey all the way all my whole life, but never on a on a team that I needed to try out for just on a team where I could pay money and and they would put you on the team. Oh, uh, that's like politics, right? Yeah. Yeah. Pay to play. Yeah. It's I was on the uh, Mar-a-Lago tropics. Nice. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, um, so we did. So I did I did that, my you know, uh, all through high school. And then when I went to university, I, I decided um, that I would just start my own intramural hockey team so I could make decisions on who were, who was on the team and not. Uh, yeah. So so the, and then I, I currently still still kind of do that now. With my uh, adult rec hockey league, we I know we've talked about the my team names and the, the teams I play for uh, Gunga Lagunga, uh, named for uh, the great um, exchange between Bill Murray and um, uh, Billy. I think it is is the caddy's name and in Caddyshack. I could be wrong on that. Um, where he talks about meeting the Dalai Lama and being caddy for him. And, and anyway, that's one of the teams. The other team I play for is uh, named Sixty Five Roses after. 
um, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, uh, and were sponsored by um, uh, the, the very tasty Chick-fil-A. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> very tasty and homophobic Chick-fil-A. Well, there's, I mean, they have, there, there's some issues. My, my Chick-fil-A <laughs> experience and my personal Chick-fil-A guy, um, who, who is my friend and, and sponsors the team. We, we've had, we've had some, some discussions about, uh, the politics and he's like, I don't, uh, I don't subscribe to that, uh, to that world. Um, so yes, they, they do have some, uh, some general, uh, corporate issues. Um, but uh, we only have uh, three rules on uh, – well, really two rules on getting cut from, from either of those hockey teams. And one is um, when it's your turn to bring beer, you better show up with beer. And if you don't, then you're probably off the team. Wow. Well, that's, uh, that's a pretty uh, – that's, pretty, pretty, uh, that's a pretty important uh, rule, I think. Yeah. Uh, and the number two, number two rule is just be a good, good person, a fun person to hang out with. So if you're uh, – if you're a jerk and you, you take things too seriously and you want to fight somebody, um, you're probably going to find that you're not on our team anymore. Huh. That's, uh, that's yep. very not hockey-like. I thought hockey was all about fighting. <laughs> no, hockey's oh, not all about okay. fighting. Hockey's, hockey's about, it's about team, Don. Team. It's about, it's about, yeah, it's about having, having good, good people and good, good community around you. It's like, uh, it's like uh, I think there's other things in life where, where people would say that. Hey, speaking of, speaking of teams, um, I'm wearing my uh, Pod Save uh, America t-shirt today. <laughs> uh, friend of the pod, Don Schaffner. Hoping, uh, hoping I run into some famous Republican uh, in, the, in the airport today so I can take my picture with him. <laughs> oh, gosh. I hope so, too. I really – look, I, you're, you need to be on the lookout. I'm glad you, uh, you received the – uh, the shirt. I, you know, we, you and I have talked about the Pod Save America and Cricket Media team, and and that being over the last uh, year or so, one of our favorite podcast stops. And uh, yeah, they they have these uh, front of the pod T-shirts, which is your favorite. Uh, one of your favorite phrases, I would say. Well, I think I think you you uh, you mean one of my least favorite phrases. Oh, yeah, that's true. I did enjoy. Our, uh, the text exchange we had uh, when you received it, uh, where you said that it's going to. Um, sorry, my, my dog would like to chime in on that. Uh, this is, I think, the, the theme of this episode is dogs in the background. Oh my gosh, so true. Um, it's going to be, quote, it's going to be a shame to have to correct it in Sharpie, but a man's got to do what a man's got to do. <laughs> one, one of the greatest uh, texts that I've received. Oh, well, thank you. Good, good stuff. Um, hey, so uh, what what else is I going to tell you about that's going on um, in my life? Yes, yeah, so we're moving. I want to mm-hmm. tell you about something that I've learned in the last little bit that's kind of food safety related and kind of not that's related to my house. Mm. Um, I want to talk about septic tanks. Oh, we talked about this already on the on the podcast. Well, we talked about water and septic um, right. and your new neighborhood where you are apparently – it's like an enclave. Right, right, right. But I want to tell – this is an update. Oh, okay. But, awesome. Yeah. So, so – um, we, we, we now have had, um, we've gone through our whole process of, are we going to buy the house and who's going to fix the septic tank and, and all that kind of stuff in the midst of this, I, this is going to sound ridiculous. Um, this is going to sound like, and I didn't know anything about science of poop, which is, I mean, really what the job we're in. Mm. But did you know, Don, that, um, that a, a septic tank is like a big fermentation tank? I think, or, and I, did I miss this? No, I, I well, fermentation is probably not the right words, but but there are uh, there are things that go on there uh, with the action of microorganisms, and and yes, uh, yes, uh, fer- fermentation loosely defined uh, would be applicable. Yes, yeah, and that 
there are like certain things that you can't do because of that, like pour a bunch of bleach down your drains. Right. That would be bad. That would kill bacteria. And yeah. And, and you don't want that. And if you've got a septic tank, yep. It's, it's like this whole thing. So I, I really, I mean, truthfully, I really thought that a septic tank was just a big tank. Like, like just right. a big hole, like a holding, a holding tank for all my poop. Mm-hmm. And then every once in a while, someone would come get rid of it. And I didn't realize that they're like, and I, I never really thought about it. Right. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. maybe that wouldn't be the best thing to have all these like poop tanks that are all over the place that are releasing a bunch of gases and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, there's this whole, um, anaerobic, uh, situation that my dog would like to tell you about. Um, and then it like forces water out and there's like a whole bunch of stuff so anyway now we we've we've gone through this whole process i now know more about that i had to read up on it stanley you are a friend of the pod right now (laughs) um yeah so there's this like sludge that that we the the tank that we have um is is like uh almost 40 years old or the tank that we will have in a couple of weeks and um and it um because of that some of the old technology is not um maybe ready to meet some of the way that some of the ways that people test their their tanks so we're hoping that we don't get sewage backed up into our house but um but i yeah i just i spent a lot of time in the last two weeks like since our last podcast researching more about how this whole process works and it's fascinating. So, so I, are you? Do you have to get a new tank? Uh, probably not. That, there's the other interesting part about this. So, you can have an inspector come out and um, inspect the tank and run it through tests. And one of the tests is to walk around the um, the drainage bed um, or the septic field, as it's known, where there are little like they're they're essentially pipes with holes that will let water out um at the top of the tank and so first part of the inspection is walking around to see if there's any spongy areas where you may have water build up and it's not actually draining um the second part of the test is to open up the tank and flush it with a lot of water to see if when you force water through does it come out um all throughout the the drainage field and so um, we, um, we uh, the the inspection the in, the inspection that we had on it um, failed that that second part. So there wasn't any like standing water. Here's the rub in the whole situation: um, because it's wastewater and sewage, the um, the county has to make a decision. Like we couldn't just fix a septic tank. You need to have a permit to do so, and because um, it needs like an environmental assessment if you're going to dig it up and you have to control wastewater. The county that's involved in, in making those decisions, they, they won't, um, their um, processes, they wouldn't grant a permit for replacing it unless, A, it's broken, which it's not clear that it is because they sent someone out and it had their definition of fail is if there's water that's standing or like sewage that's standing um, and B, the only other way that we could get a permit is if we were to um, change the size of our house uh, and add more bedrooms. Um, and so what, what we kind of have to do is we know, and this, the talk, speaking with the, um, the county inspector, 
He said, and this is, it's good because it like crossed into our world of environmental health because he's an environmental health specialist, but focuses on septic and sewage. He said, look, it's 40 years old. It's going to fail at some point. When it does fail, we will obviously grant you a, um, a permit to, to fix it. But in its current state, um, when I did my, my inspection walk around, it's not currently failing. So we don't want people just like digging up and, you know, their, their septic tanks. Right, because that would that would be excessive and would right. lead to you know fecal contamination, blah blah blah. So the idea is you want to you want to run it right up until it fails, and then only at that point replace it. Because otherwise, you just have this gratuitous replacement of septic tanks, which which could be could lead to environmental consequences. Exactly right. So it it's this whole like. Um, you know, I want I, I really what we tried to do was negotiate with the with the seller like, hey, we know that this septic system is going to fail at some point. Like no one's going to argue with that. Anybody, you know, who's and it may be and, and but it may be five weeks from now. It might be another 20 years. We don't No one really can predict that um, without digging it up. And you can't dig it up without a permit and you won't get a permit unless it's broken. Um, and so we, we didn't have a lot of negotiation power with the, with the buyer. As soon as the county came out and said, look, you, we wouldn't, you can't fix it because we don't see anything that's wrong with it. Even though you've had this independent assessment, um, it's, it doesn't meet our, our requirements of actually failing. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, you, you, you end up with this whole, like, you know, stuck stuck in a situation where we 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 wanted to be able to like recoup some of the cost, um, but re- but uh, from the seller standpoint, they're like, well, it's not broken, and in fact, we have documentation from the county saying it's not broken. And there's nothing to fix, so why would you? Why would we pay you for that? Um, yeah, which makes, kept- makes sense. I mean, it, it's you know, it's it's interesting, right? And it, it is it is nice in that it is. Um, it is it is kind of a glimpse inside the world of policy that is related to, but not exactly the policy that we often deal with on this podcast. And yeah, it's it's, it's fascinating. So uh, thanks for thanks for sharing that. Yeah, no problem. Well, and and I feel like if this had been, I mean, if this was in our world of food safety, I'm really well equipped with the the technical aspect behind it, right? Like I can. I, I can understand the nuance of the policy it, it, with home buying. I mean, I don't know that world at all. And it meant that I had to do a bunch of research to figure out, I mean, first of all, what is it that I'm even dealing with here? How does it work? And then why, why are the policy decisions the way they are? Um, so yeah, it was, it, and it made me you know, think more about what we do in, 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 in the food safety world where, we largely have to – someone tells us something doesn't work or like if I put this in the, the terms of, of food safety auditing, we're trusting that, some, that there's a standard and someone's going to go out there and, and test that that standard. Um, in this case, I didn't even know what the standard was. Like I really had to learn about about that. And, and it made me appreciate more someone who might be really good at, at growing apples who is now faced with – all right, you need to do a, a GFSI audit, but you're not your background's in growing apples, not keeping pathogens off of apples. Yeah, actually, and the analogy I was thinking of is more. It's like, well, we've got we've got local public health, and we've got 
uh, our corporate food safety policy, and those are both policies, but, they, but there's no guarantee. They might both be informed by science, but there's no guarantee that they are equivalent or even the same, and so therefore um, you have to f kind of follow what, what, the, what the, the, you know, the primary in this case, which would be not, not what your house inspector person said or what you necessarily want, but in fact what um, the uh, uh, what local public health d decrees is the situation, which is yeah, that yeah. You, you do not have a failed septic tank. You have, right, or, right. or rather, you have a you have a septic tank that passes um, that 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 meets that meets uh, the standard. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, and you're kind of stuck. Right. Um, so. Yeah, it was. It's been it's been interesting because it it's um, it's not it's not an ideal situation. It's not when we, you know when you're looking for a house, or at least in, in my experience, this this whole idea of septic tank and and whether it fails or whether it passes or or what that means and the policy of it really didn't come into effect in our whole thought process or conversation. We were just looking for a, a cool place to live, and that had the space that we were looking for. Um, and then, and, and I mean, and the system, at least here in North Carolina is built for, for us as a buyer and as, as a seller to be protected, right? Like, so we, we have a period of due diligence where we can get all the inspections that we want. And really up until, um, a week ago, Friday, um, we could have, you know, walked away from, from the deal if we, if we didn't feel comfortable with, with the situation and that, you know, there's all this negotiation that, that goes on, which is much more stressful than than I remembered um, in the past. Um, and and so, but I mean, uh, you know, ultimately we made we made a decision that well, we're we're going to have to accept that at some point it's going to be we know it's going to be replaced, so we have to make plans for that. But we really like the space and we like the location, and and it meets all the other needs. It's just this one of other one other thing that you have to worry about. So, yeah, well, and, and that this is what happens uh, when you buy a house, right. Is like, sometimes you just have to deal with stuff that is, you know, not to your satisfaction and you have to weigh, okay, so is it worth, is it worth going forward? Is it worth fighting over this? What, what's our, what, how much leverage do we have and what yep. do we just have to, to suck up and, and deal with. So. Right. And, and one of the other complicating factors that, that I'm sure the the seller knew um, was that we you know we also had a house that we were selling that had been sold that we are you know like it has a it's under contract and we'll we'll close on it on the you know very similar day so so from a like we, we're we were faced with the situation of like well if we don't like it then then now we're Homeless. moving to <laughs> yeah like we're moving to an apartment and what would be yeah, and 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 we really like this house, and it's taken us a long time to find something that we really like. Right. So, it, say it takes us six months to find the right the right you know spot again. How much is that going to cost versus how much is it if we had to replace the septic system and the head? You know, like all that kind of stuff like weighs into the in, into the thought process where we were not at the most advantageous negotiating. I wish we had like a president that could help me with deals. Or like wrote a book or something about yeah, it because I like would have read that. The deal, yeah, so helpful, <laughs> so helpful. It's, I just like I look back and think we made our, it was it was a tremendous deal. Um, it was bigly bigly deal. Um, sad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Don. So anyway, yeah, that so that stress. Um, it will be over relatively soon, and then the next time we record a podcast that I record from home. 
it'll be in my new my new digs in my new office will be it'll like it'll feel like a remote spot because I'll be coming to you from uh you know somewhere just just, uh, just outside the septic field just outside yeah so somewhere <laughs> help me uh Don I'm reporting from the septic field um so anyway I had to uh Today we were a little delayed because of my um, my kid, uh, you know, situation with cereal. And then I got home and I realized that I already packed my headphones and my microphone. Oh, so I had to rummage through a box and find them. I knew which oh, box oh, they were. You'd, you'd pack yeah. them for the move. Yeah, for the move. Yeah. Um. So. So anyway, we're we're all good. Um, on, on that, uh, because you could, as you can tell, I'm coming to you right now from a microphone and, and headphones. Absolutely. Uh, somewhere further outside the septic field, a little, yeah, I'm, I'm about, uh, 13 miles from the, uh, 13 uh miles septic, from the field. septic field. Yeah. I'll be much closer. I'll be within, uh, really, uh, ten, ten, 10, yards maybe, uh, next time we do it from home. So exciting. Uh, it is. It's so very, very exciting. Uh, I I want to tell you about uh, what I did last week. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. Well, speaking of stress, um, I uh, I'm glad to see that they let you back in the country. Me too. Uh, um, uh, and that's good because uh, because you you traveled uh, you traveled a long way or at least a long oh, time. Uh, I did. I traveled a long time. And, yeah. It was and it was kind of a long way. I mean, so I went to Sochi, Russia, and I think I mentioned this on the last uh, podcast. There's an FAO. Um, meeting, which was billed as um, the first Russian language food safety meeting ever, or c- conference, not meeting, conference, so meaning publicly, you know, anybody can attend to it, uh, pub- uh, ever held in Russia. Wow. Is that kind of insane? Yeah. And so, so what, you know, I, I spoke with a, a couple of folks, and yeah, they'd had uh, meetings, obviously, within government organizations about food safety, but nothing where, you know, you brought in uh, people from industry, and, and there were a few there that, that came, um, and folks from uh, academia, uh, and, and had this whole, um, you know, like a, like a conference. Um, so yeah, it was, it was really cool. So let me, let me tell you about my, my travel excitement. Cause this, you know, it's always fascinating when we tell people about, um, the world of airports. Yes. Travel um, is, travel is glamorous. Travel is glamorous. I started, uh, last Monday, a week ago now, last Monday afternoon, uh, my, my trip started with me getting my shoelace caught in, uh, a escalator. Oh no. Oh yeah. I did not see about this. I didn't know about I this on the social medias. I didn't put it on the social media. You're in fact, only the second person I've told. I told Danny almost immediately afterwards. Her response was you're an idiot. Um, which my, I, my response would be, I'm, I'm glad you're okay. I'm fine uh, that could, people could lose a leg from that. Right. Like my foot was like caught and it was stuck. Anyway, the, the shoelace got, got out. Uh, I often walk around and this is, uh, you know, with shoelaces untied. Well, that's thinking, not oh, That's, that's a, oh. from a risk perspective, Ben, I can tell you that is a, that is a risky behavior. All right. Tell me about it. I saw the consequence of it. Uh, so it started there. I then went, um, uh, to, I am now um, I now get to airports a little earlier than I did before because I've subscribed to a lounge um, pass like uh, you and I have d- discussed in previous episodes. So I would you know my plan was get a little bit of lunch, have a latte, charge my stuff up, um, get ready for to to get on my flights, which were um, three, uh, uh, adding up to twenty six hours of travel. Um, I got to the lounge, got some food, sat down, went to grab my computer out of my bag. Computer's not in my bag. Where's my computer, Don? 
it's on the front uh, seat of my car. Man. So I leave. I, I go to the lovely people at the front desk of the lounge and say, can I leave my stuff here? I need to run to my car to get my computer because I'm going – you know, I'm going away and all of my slides are on it. Everything that I need for the next four days is on it. So I run to the uh, parking garage, get my computer, go back through security and make it back in time two minutes before I have to board. Oh, geez, Ben, that's, that's <laughs> nerve wracking. So what, what was your computer? If I may ask, yeah, well, what was your computer doing on the front seat of your car? That's uh so that's not I, where I keep my computer. Oh, no, not the place I usually leave it. I had a um, a brief meeting in my in my building in my office before on my way to the airport, and I needed to have my computer out. Then I realized that I needed to go to the airport, so I grabbed my bag, put it over my shoulder, picked up my computer, and closed it down and had it under my arm as I went to the as I went to my my uh, my car. When I got in my car, I put my bag on the front seat and I put my computer on the front seat. My computer was angled up. Oh. Not not flat, and yep. so I grabbed my bag, didn't even think about it, oh, and then when I got man. back to my car, I was like, "Oh, there it is, it's angled." So I could, I didn't, you know, it's on my field of view. I wasn't even looking for it because it wasn't flat. Yep. Oh. Mm. So it started. It started there. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, That's the not the way you want to start a trip, man. That's stressful. No, it was. It was stressful, and and I met um, Callie Neal, uh, our good friend, friend of the pod. Uh, podcast listener, and you and I uh, spent time with Callie uh, a couple of years ago going to see the Good Lovelies in concert in, yep. in Boston. Um, Callie was also uh, on this trip. We were uh, travel buddies, so she met me in Raleigh, and well, I have already returned to the gate with my um, computer in hand, sweating profusely. Of course. Because it was, yeah, because I ran and it was like 90 degrees. This is um, TSA Pre came in very handy. Yes. Uh, and so anyway, got there, get on our flight, fly to uh, overnight to Paris, um, get to Paris. And as I'm uh, about to board our, our uh, second, my second flight, Cali's third flight, um, they do not let me on the plane because my visa for Russia uh, would have me arriving about four hours earlier than my visa would allow me to. Oh. And, and I couldn't just hang out. And not and cross it at you know midnight plus one minutes. I uh, they wouldn't let me on the plane, so I yeah. So that that sucked. Uh, But here's the silver lining of all this because this is like everything that not or most things that happen in my in my life where I I'm like careless and I mess up and I don't pay attention to things. It all works out in the end, which just rewards me for being careless and not paying attention to things. Um, I, uh, I got to, uh, I went to the Aeroflot desk. They rebooked me for a flight that was 12 hours later that would arrive in Moscow at 4 a.m. and get me to Sochi at uh, 10 a.m., which was about, you know, 10 hours later than I was going to get there. Uh, and I found myself with a uh, 12-hour gap of time in Paris. Um, sacre bleu. Sacre yeah, tabernacle. Uh, and it was enough time that I could do something. And so if it was eight hours or six hours, I might have just stayed in the, in the airport. Um, and it, there was no change fee for rebooking. Um, so it didn't, you know, didn't cost me anything. And I rented a car and I drove out to 
um, the Normandy area of France and uh, a place where it's rife with history uh, from World War II. And uh, I have some personal history, not my personal history, but in my my, my grandfather um, landed at D-Day, uh, landed on the um, the beaches uh, in Normandy on D-Day, and then and then uh, you know fought um, for a couple of days after that. Well, he fought for a long time after that, but a couple of days after that, went to this town um, that was it's maybe about 15 miles uh, from the beach and had this this battle. Um, where there were a lot of Canadian lives that were lost, but he and he was very lucky and, and ended up being uh, one of seven survivors and, and became the commanding officer of his company because his commanding officer had been injured and, and so he had uh, carried him and they took over a tank and and I knew I knew this story uh, about about ten years ago, fifteen years ago. I got I got really interested in in that part of my my history and my grandfather's life. And, and he, he and I were, were really, really close. Um, he passed away from, uh, from a brain tumor, from cancer. Um, he was in his, in his mid seventies is, it was, uh, I guess now is about 20 years ago. And so over the last, uh, two or three years, um, I, I spent, he, he lived in a town, um, about, uh, an hour away from from where my my parents and I lived, and I would go as as in, as he got sick, I'd go every week and and drive and 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 sort of cut cut his lawn and spend a lot of time with him. And we never, I mean, we talked about a lot of stuff, but ne- he never really sort of talked about the, his experiences in the war. Um, but there was a book that was that was written by someone not in his. Um, not in his company, but in another company that that fought you know, a, a similar um, a similar set of tales uh, around D-Day that that I read about ten years ago, I guess, uh, and I'll have to find the the link for for show notes. Um, but it sort of detailed this this battle, and so I knew I knew about, and I you know went to the internet when I when I had these twelve hours in France, and I was like, you know what, I should I'm gonna go drive out there and, and see this this little town and and just like absorb it and, and take it in, and so I did that, and and it was fascinating, it was really emotional. Um, I had a conversation with a, a parent uh, of um, of another uh, another hockey parent yesterday because uh, I posted about this on Facebook and he said he had just recently been to uh, to Germany and had seen um, the Dachau concentration camp and and had seen a lot of like old sort of bombed out um, churches and in, in these towns in, in Germany and and he said uh, and people have asked me about this this experience. Um, and was it really intense? And, and he said, none of the words that people were using to describe it really captured what he, what he felt. He said, the only thing you could think about was like, it was very visceral. And I was mm-hmm. like, you're exactly right. That's, that's what it felt like. It was so, um, so anyway, I, I, the silver lining in my, me not paying attention to when my visa was and, uh, when my flight was booked for, uh, was that I got to go have this experience that, that I've been wanting to experience for a while and and had never you know it's not a place where it's like hey we're just going to go on vacation to france um so so anyway it was it it was very um yeah it, it was like an important it was this important day that i would never have had had i had i paid attention to my to my travel plan <laughs> how insane is that right i'm glad i'm glad it all worked out okay yeah me too um so so anyway that was uh that's what I had. Um, let me uh, let me find this uh, this great 
um, this great book, and we can put this uh, in in the show notes. All right. Well, while you're uh, while you're doing that, um, I want to uh, get into the uh, listener feedback uh, part of the podcast because I have very, very carefully um, selected uh, the, those things in the uh, folder that are related to listener feedback. And um, this is a uh, this is a comment entitled uh, Ben's shopping question. Um, <laughs> Yes. And, and it says, uh, hi, Ben and Doug. Um, so I think that, first of all, that person is a little confused about who, who I am, maybe, or maybe about who you are. Uh, fan of the show here, uh, Food Safety Talk is a regular on my commute playlist, and I think what you guys do is valuable to other food safety professionals. My question leans more towards personal than professional. Well, that's, the, you know, the bacteria. That's all we have. The bacteria don't care. So, um, yeah. Uh, Ben, I think it was podcast uh, 124. You mentioned that your grocery shopping also includes stops at multiple shops on the same trip. I was wondering how you maintain safe temperatures when purchases from one store sit in the car while you're inside another. Do you keep a cooler in the car? Do you save all of your cold storage items for the last stop? Um, I remember reading once that when at a supermarket, shoppers should start with shelf-stable items and work outward to choose meat and produce last in order to minimize the time it sits at room temperature. I'm curious what your thoughts are. So, Ben, your thoughts. What do I do? Yeah. Yeah. So so I – here, here are my risk management and quality decisions. I don't really pay too much attention to the cold storage side of things. Um, I do all of my shopping. We're, I mean, where I am, we're really lucky that we have like nine different grocery stores in a probably 10 mile radius from my house. So when I do these like two or three stop trips, I'm never gone for more than an hour and a half or two hours. Like I've got, there are certain things I get at certain places and I do plan a little bit, but not for safety reasons. I, Don, the thing that I worry about the most is ice cream. I really hate like ice cream that's soft. I like crazy, crazy hard ice cream. And I don't like the consistency when it melts a little bit and refreezes. Yep. So for everything else, I mean, meat, um, any of the um, ready-to-eat foods that require re- refrigeration that I would like deli meats or anything else that I, that I would get if I, if I was getting those things, I, I just kind of say, okay, well, I've got – you know, I know that it's going to get into my cart at around 40, 41 degrees. The temperature is going to rise a little bit. I'm going to stick all the cold things together in the car um, to insulate them, hopefully, uh, a little bit, and they'll maintain some cool. Maybe it'll go up to 50 degrees uh, or, or 55 or something in the time that I get home if it's if it's like a couple hours. But then I'm going to put it in the refrigerator right away and drop the temperature um, again. So I may may have a slight little bit of, uh, you know, uh, temperature um fluctuation, but I don't think it would qualify as a, as abuse, uh, for when it comes to safety aspects of things. Um, but I would worry about it more for quality reasons. Yep. Yep. And that's yeah, and we and we don't have the same uh, problem because we typically will only shop at one store at a time. Um, and we do have a, um, we have a God, we have a just a boatload of uh, reusable shopping bags because uh, we get them at conferences and, and things like that. And so we've got way more than we need. But one of the ones that we really like to actually we've got a couple that we really like to use that are insulated. And so if it's really if it is really a, a – we know we're getting ice cream or something frozen on a trip, we'll bring that bag and, and again, try to uh, try to, to pack it that way. But, but yeah, it's good. So thank, thank you for sharing that. So um, in keeping with our theme of 
listener feedback or, 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 or messages from the internet and shopping, uh, food safety and, 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 and temperatures. Um, this is, uh, an inquiry that actually came to, uh, to Doug. So just to clarify, I'm Don, you're Ben. <laughs> Doug is the other guy, uh, that you, that you do a, uh, not a podcast with, but you do a blog with, uh, that's, uh, that's Doug Powell, uh, uh, f- formerly of, uh, uh, Kansas State University and now, um, uh, the editor in chief of, of Bark Blog. I don't, I don't know what his actual title is, but it doesn't matter because he doesn't listen. Um, right. So, and he often gets messages from the general public. Um, and uh, so, so here it is. Um, here's the message from, uh, again, from uh, somebody who, who found his, uh, found the website, Bark Blog website and, and, and had a question. So um, my household is in a debate on this and I want to make sure that we are prudent. So I really appreciate an informed perspective. We keep a refrigerator in our garage and I use it, uh, the freezer in that refrigerator to store meat. Last Tuesday, I unplugged the refrigerator thinking I was unplugging the lawnmower battery. Uh, We didn't (laughs) notice until Sunday. The freezer was full of frozen beef. We buy meat from a local rancher, so we have quite a bit. It all defrosted. I pulled a thin pack from the front and stuck a meat thermometer in. It said 55 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, I think that's just under 13 degrees C. My sister, who I usually trust in matters scientific since she is an epidemiologist, although I have, I pointed out this doesn't make her an expert in food safety. Uh, <laughs> thinks that just we like can... we're not experts in epidemiology. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, thinks that we can refreeze the meat and it will, quote, be fine, close quote, if there is no smell and it is cooked thoroughly. I have been reading up, though, that bacteria can produce toxins that won't be killed by cooking. Good job, uh, 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 emailer. Um, uh, won't be killed by cooking and that these toxins are often the real culprit in food poisoning. I'm not sure if they're the real culprit, but they can be the culprit. Um, so in short, I will no longer unplug cords without confirming their purpose. Good, good plan. Good plan. Um, just like, uh, always put your computer in your bag and don't leave it on the seat of your car. Um, uh, and then also, um, uh, oh, and it's a little, it's a little chopped off here. I hate to something, something waste food unnecessarily. So I, I'm sorry, I, I'm chopped up the yep. message here. Um, uh, and then number three, I feel much worse about making someone sick unnecessarily than about wasting food. Excellent point. So, um, uh, so Doug's response is, um, uh, I'm not a medical doctor, <laughs> but I will provide information. And I'm also CCing a couple of profs who know more than I do. I don't know about that, Doug, but um, we do our best. Um, I agree with your sister that if the temperature readings, uh, if the temperature readings were accurate, 55 degrees Fahrenheit is not going to get a lot of spore formation when refreezing, but there may be quality issues, not safety issues. I may be wrong. Um, and so um, what I did to solve this problem or to address this problem is I looked at the time frame, okay? And because because it's it's all about time and temperature. So on Tuesday, the power was lost. On Sunday, the temperature was measured, okay? And so that it's 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 one thing to say I unplugged it in the morning and I checked it in the afternoon. It's a it's a different thing to say I unplugged it on Tuesday and I right. checked it on Sunday. And so, um, uh, so my response is I made a few assumptions. I ran some computer modeling predictions. Um, and, and again, I used a Combase uh, model, which we'll link to, which is, which is a great, great modeling tool, uh, pathogen growth and spoilage growth. Um, the models predicted a significant amount of growth of spoilage organisms, and they also predicted a non-trivial amount of pathogen growth. And I did not put actual numbers in the email, um, yeah. but I suspect by non-trivial, uh, it was greater than a half a log, or it might have even been greater than a log. Um, and then, of course, I offer the caveat. 
Of course, these are computer models based on assumptions, uh, but they are worth considering. Um, and, and then again, to sort of sum it up, uh, when I consider the amount of time, which is long, and the final temperature, which is, you know, 55 is rather warm, um, uh, my advice would be to discard the food. Um, and then I also said uh, I would give the same advice if you were a ref- refrigerated warehouse with a lot more liability and product on the line. So do you, uh, Ben, do you have thoughts on this uh, Aussie freezer lost power email? I do. I love, I love that you, uh, started the email with, I made a few assumptions and ran some computer computer modeling predictions. (laughs) Um, but I, this is, I mean, this is exactly what, what we're here for. Um, not, not to like overstate it, but I think the quick answer that you would get if you ask this question at, um, a, a, a county extension center, or if you you went to the USDA or FDA foodsafety.gov website, all, all great resources, it, it, they would say, yeah, um, it's above 55 degrees, and we would assume that it was over four hours, so you should throw it out. Right, and and that that's a fine answer, but if if we look at the the questioner, and especially just just the way. She detailed how she was making her decisions. What it, she gave us all the information to really give a much more detailed answer that's more science based. That's exactly what why we do this, right? Like that that is the the goal of, of food safety talk and what you and I do on Twitter, what we do on Barf Blog is all right. Let's give people more than when in doubt, throw it out. Um, and and I think that that this is. I, I love I love the way you answered this and with the justification and that if it had been, let's say, if the if the model had had said, you know what, there is going to be growth of of spoilage organisms, but the pathogen, uh, you know, say, say it was, you know, 50, maybe whatever, if the time was shorter, or the temperature was lower um, to be able to say these two things don't add up to um, increased risk to you. So it's probably going to taste really crappy or smell bad when you open it up. But uh, pathogen-wise, it's as safe as it was or as risky as it was before. I, I love that that's, that's part of this conversation, that it's not just, hey, when in doubt, throw it out. If it's four hours uh, or above, which we don't know for sure, but it would be a pretty good guess that if it got to – you know, 55 degrees, it's been some time uh, above 41 degrees. Uh, and that's, you know, I thought it was awesome. Thanks. It was, yeah, Thanks. it was great. And, um, and it's, yeah, that's, we, we need to do more of this stuff. Well, uh, well, we're going to have an opportunity to do that because uh, I have one one last uh, bit of information uh, that I want to share from uh, listener uh, Tim Hardy, who says, uh, uh, please share all details freely. And so Tim, uh, Tim emailed us this question. And then a little while later, he said, oh, you know, I just finished listening to an episode and you actually talked about it already. Um, but but and I'm sorry about that. And it's like, it's OK, Tim, but we'll we'll talk about this anyway, because I think it is it is important. Um, and uh, anyway, he's, he says, Tim. Oh, Tim. He says, I'm too dumb to ask this question well. So here goes. It's not dumb at all. Tim, you ask it very well. Um, his question, and it's a great one, and we've talked about it before, this topic before, and we will continue to talk about it. Um, can kimchi go bad 
to the point where it will make a person sick. What are the best handling practices for kimchi and pickled products in general? Um, and then he says, I can send you a photo of the food label if it will help. I, I don't think we need the food label. Um, but this is this is exactly the kind of question that we have asked before. Um, we've talked about yogurt, right? Uh, can yogurt go bad? Uh, can, you know, because it's got it's basically yogurt is basically uh, spoiled milk. So um, I don't know, Ben. Ben, what are, what are your thoughts? Uh, can uh, can kimchi go bad to the point where it'll make a person sick? I, th- I, I think it can, and and I'll I'm going to give a, a couple of um, uh, you know uh, assumptions again again with this. I think um, beyond. Tim's like exact question of it, once I have kimchi, can it go bad? The, we, I think we need to um, explore during the kimchi making process. Can it go wrong and lead to increased risk, or can we have some some issues with pathogens? That yeah, I mean we know we know from some some past outbreaks um, that that's uh, definitely uh, definitely a possible possibility. And we we talked a little bit about this in the past, but we do know that. There are some acid tolerant pathogens that, uh, like E. coli 157H7, that if um, if it's there through the whole process, um, dropping that that pH without uh, any sort of heating step um, is is going to uh, you know there's a likelihood that it's still going to be there at the end of the making kimchi, and so over time it's not going to get any riskier but the you know the process is not going to take care of the uh, of the e coli 0157 that's there i think the yogurt's a little different because to make yogurt we need a heat step right like we have to have uh, um, th- there's a kill step um, for the competing vegetative cells and and we want to knock those down to a level where they don't outcompete the um, the lactic acid um, producing bacteria that's going to ferment and and we, in that heating process it's also likely going to take care of some of if there were um, if there was uh, 0157 it's it, it's going to reduce it somewhat with kimchi we're not we're really not doing any heating um, at all so I think it comes down to did it start with you know um, no, no, a one five seven in it in the first place, right? And and that's a good point. And so, and with with yogurt, um, uh, virtually all commercially made yogurt today um, uses a starter culture. Um, even if you make yogurt in your home, you are probably inoculating it with some yogurt that you that you have um, already. And so that, that that is using a natural inoculum, but it is using an inoculum. Um, and I don't, I don't know enough about, and and we'll, we'll. There's a really nice uh, PowerPoint from um, uh, Laura Bauer and um, Marissa Bunning at Colorado State University that you just sent me the link to, which we will, we will uh, link to in show notes. Um, but uh, with kimchi. Um, Typically, you don't use a starter, right? And a lot of these uh, vegetable fermentations, you basically just uh, add salt and uh, you let it go. And and you hope, again, you get the the right organisms taking off. You hope you – and you get the – use the appropriate amount of salt. And and as you mentioned, there have been 0157H7 outbreaks from uh, kimchi, not so much from spoiled kimchi but from kimchi that didn't undergo – a proper fermentation process and therefore did not, uh, you know, appropriately manage the risk of uh, uh, 0157H7, which which can obviously occur in vegetables uh, from time to time. Yeah, and I would uh, I'm going to link to a couple more papers um, that there that's out there that that sort of gives us data that says if you put something like E. coli 0157 or Listeria or Salmonella into kimchi, um, it, it's 
it, it, it might hang around, right? Like depending yeah. on what the, what, what the properties are. Yeah. So I, I think we'll know. Yeah. I sent you that link to um, Laura and, and Marisa's PowerPoint. Cause and, and I couldn't find it here, but I think they have a fact sheet as well. Like recipes on making um, kimchi that are, that are tested uh, that they've done work on. And we'll find that for show notes before we post, but they, um, I think they're doing some of the best work out there on answering these exact questions. What's the safest way to make kimchi? Uh, and, and also Brian Numer at, um, at Utah State. Uh, what are the safe ways to do this? What do we have to worry about in a retail setting? What do you have to worry about in a home setting? How do you do it in a, in a, in a safe way? And I, I've told um, – I'm not sure if I've mentioned this on the podcast, but I use this story in, in my talks quite a bit. Um, I was asked uh, last year to give a, a, a talk at, at IAFP on um, r- risks in retail fermentation and sort of pull together the regulatory piece and, and any of the data that, that we know. And, and I started off that talk with a story about my neighbor who um, is really into kimchi and you know, we were outside one day, just like our kids are playing with each other. And he was, he's like, I know you do food science and food safety. He's like, let me tell you about what, um, what I've been doing. Cause I'm, I'm really interested in making my own kimchi. And he said, I, you know, I get, um, some, some cabbage and I get, uh, some onions and I get some carrots and I shred it all up and I put it in a Mason jar and then I put some salt in and I, uh, fill the jar up with water and then I tighten the lid and then I put it on my counter and I, you know, I'm in the process of, of just trying to make it. And I was like, well, <laughs> like, okay, uh, how much, how much salt? Um, and he's like, I, you know, I don't, I don't know, like, a like a couple of scoops uh, of salt. And, and I was like, well, how much like water? You know what I mean? Like tell yeah. me about the ratios was the question. And, and, and as I was asking sort of more questions, the look on his face was like, oh my gosh, am I doing something here that might be unsafe? Should I just continue to buy refrigerated fermented kimchi at the grocery store? Or can I actually do this, this myself? And I was like, you know, I, th- I think you could do it. I think you can do it yourself. Let me get you some some information on what you should think about, what the salt ratio should be in the, you know, four to five percent. And I kind of explained to him why you're using salt and kimchi and that, you know, this this technique's been around for thousands of years. But you're you're using that salt to select specifically for types of uh, bacteria that are going to create lactic acid, and that's what's going to then, in turn, change the pH of this this product, and and that's what gives you the kimchi flavor and and taste, but also what gives you the the safety aspects. And and it's, you know, it, it seems like it's a not. Um, uh, that it's an easy process because you know it's something that's been done for thousands of years. How could it not be, you know, simple? And it, it is, but it's got, but you have some rules, right? And so we talked about, you know, maybe just getting a pH meter if you want to make this stuff, and 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 then. I think at the end he's like, ah, that sounds like a lot of work. So I'm going to just continue to buy it. <laughs> well, there you go. That's also <laughs> yeah. a good solution. Yeah, but but I mean, that, I, I think we're going to see more of this, like more of these types of questions. People that are really interested in fermented foods and wanting to make them at home, and and I, I kin this to a conversation that that was had at a meeting um, that I was at maybe eight years ago. Uh, of the Partnership for Food Safety Education, the scientific group that that provides some direction to that to that 
that partnership. And I got invited to this meeting miraculously, I think because Christine Bruin's on it and she she likes me. So she's she asked me to to be part of that. And there was a guy from FDA and I think it was Alan Levy. Do you know Alan Levy? I do not. Okay, so I think that's who it is. Um, I may have this name wrong, but he did some work on um, consumer, yeah, consumer behavior research, um, and he told a story about being at FDA in the early to mid '80s when um, vacuum sealing foods became like technologically possible in, in people's homes and that that there's this whole concern at FDA that people were going to essentially kill themselves with bot by um you know by our reduce oxygen packaging their meat and leaving it in their fridge at 50 degrees cuz they had a really warm fridge and we're going to have all this bot issues and people are going to die left them and right and with the rise of that technology and it being at every Bed Bath & Beyond that you can go and now at Walmart and, and Target, um, there's been like – Don, how many, how many deaths have you seen or illnesses from bought from consumer vacuum-sealed food has there been um, that, you, that you know of, that you've seen? I'm a, it's a kind of a trick question, Don. Um, not too many? Zero. Zero. Okay. Yeah. If you look at the – as far as I can tell, as far as Alan kind of had this discussion, I won't put words in his mouth. It was just like this idea was we're going to have people dying by doing this, but we we haven't. It's not to say that there's no no risk of it. It's just maybe we over we, – we, we look at risk as this type of thing is going to happen. And, and you and I who are in the risk world, that's not – we know that's not the case, right? Like, like not everything's going to fall in the place where we have deaths and illnesses. So not to say do it as like unsafely as possible, but, but with, with kimchi, I put it in the same bucket. Absolutely. My neighbor could have made himself sick and it could have been really, really bad. And what he did probably created the environment for that to happen. But Probably if he had fermented it for three days on his counter, like he had planned on it or five days, his, the jar would have exploded. Like, like it would have, it, it was more likely that it wouldn't have made it to creating bot, bot toxic. Right. Cause it would have spoiled first. Right. Right. And same, same thing with the, with, with the ROP. So I, you know, I don't know where, where, where to go with that other than it, people don't aren't killing themselves all the time from this and the risk is still there. Well, and actually I know exactly where I want to go with this, which is um uh people that are dying from bot and uh oh, yeah. do you or or are are uh, are getting sick and and there's this has been so I just did a quick uh look in the notes for the podcast and there are 1 2 3 4 5 stories um, that, that have come across my radar, uh, starting on the 8th of the month. Uh, this is May 22nd as we record this. So starting on May 8th, um, uh, it's an article from a barf blog, uh, bot posted by you. Look at that. Um, bot cluster linked to California gas station. And so, uh, this, uh, you, and again, I'll, I'll read, uh, briefly, 
um, from your from your 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 very good post here. Uh, botulism is no joke. The threat of bot, to- bot toxins binding to nerve endings and blocking muscle contraction scares me. A uh, small bit of toxin means no hockey, no catch with my kids, and months of rehab. Uh, well, yes, exactly. Um, uh, there's usually less. Still reading from your article. Uh, there's usually less than a couple hundred cases annually in the U.S. and not much foodborne. In the past week. We've seen uh, deer antler tea, which we talked about last time, Um, but also now a California gas station looks to be the source of another outbreak, according to the Sacramento Bee. Now reading from the the, the Bee, uh, quoted by you, uh, Sacramento County public health officials are investigating a botulism outbreak after several people who ate prepared food from the Valley Oak Food and Fuel Gas Station in Walnut Grove contracted the possibly fatal form of food poisoning. Uh, the public health officer, Olivia Kassiri, said five cases are under investigation and the affected people are in serious condition at local hospitals. Four of the five confirmed they'd eaten prepared food from the gas station. Um, so, um, and this is where it started. And, uh, and then <laughs> you, you, your ending to this is br- brilliant. Um, uh, unknown, you write uh, on, on the 8th of May, unknown are the linked foods and what type of toxin it is. Uh, usually I stick to candy bars and gum at gas stations. And I have <laughs> to say, um, some time ago, uh, towards the end of, uh, uh, end of last month, beginning of this month, we were driving around uh, California and indeed did uh, stop at gas stations to buy gas and, yeah, probably gum or, or bottled water um, uh, and, and did not, I, I think, eat at this gas station, although this looks remarkably like another gas station that we did stop at. Oh, man. Um, uh, yeah, so this, is, uh, this turned out to be a kind of an interesting story, which has still uh, has continued to evolve. Um, uh, I mean, we've got a couple more stories. Stories I can I can uh, talk about, and I definitely want to bring everybody up to date with the the last uh, article from um, uh, from Marler's blog, uh, which which uh, just uh, uh, came most recently. But before I do that, do you have uh, thoughts on this? Uh, no, no. Let's let's keep going. Okay, I mean, I have so, I have some thoughts, but yeah, I okay, want to. So, yeah, so let's bring everybody up to date. So this is an article uh, posted on uh, May twenty first. Um, uh, again, from uh, one of Bill Marler's blogs, uh, which which leads with Marler Clark has been retained by six individuals and has filed a lawsuit. So you can tell uh, Bill Bill is busy. Um, he's been spending. We, we need to come back and talk about rat lungworm, which seems to be taking up a lot of his time as well. Uh, but for now, uh, yes. Uh, so the the uh, uh, the headline of the story is Gell's Cheese Sauce. That's G-E-H-L-S. Gell's Cheese Sauce possibly linked to Valley Oak Food and Fuel Gas Station Nacho Botulism Outbreak. Ten hospitalized, one death. Um, right. So the outbreak of foodborne botulism originating from the Valley Oak Food and Fuel Gas Station in Walnut Grove has less left 10 people hospitalized um, and one uh, resident of Antioch, uh, uh, California, may have died as a result. Botulism outbreak was reported to have come from nacho cheese sauce sold at the Valley Oak Food and Fuel Gas Station. Um, uh, let's see. I'll just uh, skip. Uh, yeah. So uh, ABC News reported Friday that uh, Martin Galindo contracted botulism from nacho cheese. Um, interestingly, um, uh, let's see, uh, uh, on May 6th and 7th, officers impounded bags of Mont. 
Tecito nacho cheese tortilla chips and closed the facility. Okay. Um, that's you, you sort of got right. <laughs> um, uh, officers. Um, uh, the, so, so tortilla chips, unlikely source of bot, possible, but unlikely. Um, on May 8th, health officers from the state, uh, impounded four bags of Gell's cheese sauce and reopened the store to sell pre-packaged pre- pre- food items only. Um, my money is on the cheese sauce and not the tortilla Me chips because uh, yep. we know that uh, cheese can be a botulism risk um, uh, and, and cheese sauce in particular. Um, let's see. Not not a lot of real details here. Um, you know, it talks about uh, symptoms of botulism, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, but yeah, so cheese, um, and I suspect what, and this is my prediction. This, I, don't, I don't know this, but my prediction is that um, and, and right now, it is only linked to uh, cheese sauce from this particular convenience store. So my uh, guess is that the sanitary practices at this convenience store were lax. They probably uh, reused the same container. They probably didn't clean the container. They probably uh, uh, didn't refrigerate this cheese sauce. There probably were some problems in terms of temperature control uh, that you have to keep the cheese sauce warm so you can dispense it onto the chips to make uh, to make uh, nachos. Uh, but my guess is that somehow some bot got in there, uh, maybe cross-contamination from something else, maybe uh, who knows what. Again, we don't have any, any uh, idea of the hardware inside this store, but, but given enough time and enough temperature um, and given a deep enough container, you can get anaerobic conditions and, and obviously was enough to, uh, to get some um, formation of bot toxin. So I predict we will learn more. I predict it will be temperature abuse and lack of sanitation as the causes for this. So, Ben. Yeah, this, I mean, this one is fascinating. So I'm going to send you some stuff so you can take a look at it because I agree with, with what you're saying. Um, in in a lot of in a lot of ways um it it it's certainly from you know from the illness uh where the illnesses are it certainly looks like there's some management issue at this one gas station and it's not um solely linked to the cheese sauce itself that's i mean purely purely just a, a guess here um i could see just like we've seen with some of the like the butter uh, botulism outbreak and um, garlic and oil bought um, a situation where that cheese sauce itself becomes an anaerobic environment um, and you know just that so so it's not like like you said where someone reuses it and then maybe there's some a bot spore that's inserted by a spoon or by a fork or by someone's hand deep inside this sauce, and then it's held at, at room temperature. Because um, what I link, what I sent to you um, about what this product looks like is it's a shelf stable cheese that comes in a bag. Um, and there's a couple of different ones um, that you can get. There are some that are like consumer type uh and then there's some that that's like this bag that not unlike what you would see with like a ketchup bag that goes into a large uh dispenser it's just a vacuum sealed uh product and so it would be hard i think if it was something new someone opens it up and puts it into the cheese dispenser which also i sent you a picture of and we can include in show notes where 
um, if it all goes as it's supposed to, the the nozzle end goes, in, you know, sticks out. The cheese sauce is held in this warmer, and it's held at a at a temperature probably hot enough that that you're not going to get, um, you know, spores are going to germinate, and then you're going to get uh, vegetative cell production and then toxin formation. But if you if someone who's who looks at this and says, you know what, this looks to me. Well, because it's stored in a box and it's never in a refrigerator, but we're going to take it out of this thing. And maybe there's like a, a point in the dispenser, like if someone put, you know, you may get this like back siphoning, the suction back up as that dispenser comes off and it shoots a, uh, a bot spore up inside of it. And then you put the lid back on it and you hold it at room temperature for a while and then you re-put it back into the thing and it doesn't um, – we know that – uh, bot toxins not not totally heat stable, but if this doesn't get above like boiling, which it which it wouldn't, um, you, you may not be able to denature that that toxin. I could see something like that like that happening. I also want to pitch to you another situation, and um, I, I had another uh, blog post about this once the cheese sauce that was linked um, came out. And, and I found – you, you might have been familiar with this document. Um, I hadn't seen it before, uh, this, but – um, uh, I don't know if she's friend of the podcast, but friend friend in real life, uh, Kathy Glass and friends and Ellen Doyle wrote a really great summary of the safety of processed cheeses um, for something called a um, University of Wisconsin FRI briefing document mm-hmm. back in 2005 that really talks about. I mean, talks about the science of how something like this might happen and what really if you if you're following good sanitation practices and good validation practices, this this cheese sauce, cheese sauce and even the simulation stuff itself is, is a very safe product. But what might what could have happened here, Don? Um, is in the in the storage process in the um, in the transport some point you could have a very small tear in this bag and a, and a spore and a bot spore get introduced before it actually ends up in the nozzle itself and so think about like um, uh, I know I, I don't have that sort of example on the um, at my fingertips here, but I I know that there have been concerns about um, cans that get dents in them. Um, that 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 may be an entry point for uh, uh, some sort of a bot spore, and as that can like reseals up, recreates this anaerobic environment. So we could have a similar situation here, where you would think that if you put a tear in one of these bags, that it would not reseal up, but you, I mean, you could see that this stuff might recoagulate and, and harden and, and make it so it, it does reseal up. You know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? What I'm suggesting? Yep. 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 And, and well, and so, so a, a cu- couple of different comments. So we, we will definitely link to, um, uh, all, all of these things. Um, I have to point out that, uh, one of the very first uses of a computer model for predicting food safety, uh, is the Tanaka model, which actually, uh, Kathy and Ellen, uh, linked to in, in their, uh, safety of processed cheese Whoa, uh, review. Cool. So, so that, that's pretty cool. And, uh, and yeah, you can see, uh, how, uh, with just a little bit of a change in pH, uh, a product, which is safe, um, looking at figure one, of that manuscript, 
um, uh, how how something uh, you know is is changes from safe to unsafe or able to support the growth of bot uh, versus previously not able to. So so the you know if, if these things are improperly formulated or if again through um, dilution or or something you can lead to problems. Um, also your your picture of this um, Sierra Peristaltic cheese sauce dispenser um, made me think of a paper that we had published. Um, uh, almost well more than ten years ago now in food protection trends, not on uh, cheese sauce dispenser, but the the and we'll link to this as well. The title of the article is "Understanding and Controlling Microbiological Contamination of Beverage Dispensers in University Food Service Operations." And we uh, this is based on some work uh, done by a graduate student of mine um, who uh, we discovered that uh, beverage dispenser tips uh, are a a common uh, commonly have high levels of bacteria, and that led us to to further investigation. And you know, I don't know anything about the uh, Sierra Peristaltic cheese sauce dispenser, one twenty volts, uh, two hundred watts. But uh, I do know for sure that these beverage dispensers um, are not designed to be easily cleaned and sanitized. And so, um, if you take a look at our article from Food Protection Trends, you can see that um, you know these things do become contaminated, and they are not easy to clean. Again, no experience with the Sierra Peristaltic cheese sauce dispenser, one twenty volts, two hundred watts. But uh, I. I suspect that it may also be uh, hard to clean. Although if it's a peristaltic dispenser, and you, I, I do like the the, the bag and box uh, design where you basically pull out all of the 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 anything that contacts product and throw it away and replace it with fresh. I think that's a much better design uh, than something that where you have to actually clean and sanitize inside the dispenser. So, um, but but obviously, and again, we don't know that this uh, Sierra. Uh, dispenser was what was used necessarily in this or what was what was you know implicated in this outbreak but but you know these these things are uh, potentially problematic depending upon uh, temperature control and and cleanability uh, yeah absolutely and yeah, thinking about the you know, my both of our experience in the food service world right like working with um, managers and food handlers um, I, I think you, you it's not a stretch to see a situation where you've got someone who's working, I mean, who is a food handler, a food employee as per the food code, but works at a gas station. And really the only two things that they, you know, maybe handling in a food situation is putting roller hot dogs on a roller and putting this jalapeno cheese in the, um, in this dispenser where maybe a focus of their job is not on food safety, right? Like there's, there's a continuum of someone who works at, the cheesecake factory and why you got to fight me with me there, Don, to, um, to, 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 to gas station, right? Like it's, and we, we expect that, um, that there's some basic level of understanding, but I think practically, practically, you know, that, that individual, I mean, open up the box, put it in, open up the, you know, uh, the nozzle or whatever. And, and that's, that's the extent of your prep food preparation may not have the, um, a full understanding of botulism and, and cleaning and sanitizing. Yeah, and, abs- absolutely. And, and again, I, I would say, so maybe, maybe some blame, uh, on the employee, maybe some blame on the, uh, operation, but, 
you know, the, the problem is, is that, you know, this, this probably is not uh, a high priority for someone. How, how do you, you know, how do you set up a food safety program for this, this kind of product? Because clearly uh, there's a risk, right? Processed cheese uh, has a risk. Uh, it's well been well studied by the industry, but then you have to also, uh, if you're going to have it at this location, this kind of location, you really have to make sure that, uh, that you engineer safety into it, right? And you make it really, really hard, even if an employee doesn't know what they're doing, you make it really hard, uh, you know, for them to, to screw it up. And obviously that's not what happened in this case. Right. And, and that, that makes the assumption that, that it's, you know, like the, what you suggested where is someone used leftover, resealed the bag, whatever, maybe they, maybe they, maybe they took it out of the bag or like took the bag out of the dispenser to clean it. Right. Maybe there was, and, and that they left the bag, uh, at room temperature for, for a couple of days. And was like, Oh man, we still have this. Let's use it. Um, or, um, you know, the, the other situation that, that I kind of brought up, which is I have four boxes of, uh, or a box of nacho cheese, uh, in bags and something drops on the corner of that box and splits open the, um, the bag itself, but then it reseals as it coagulates. And there's nothing that that food handler, um, would even know to look for other than maybe, Hey, is there hardened cheese on it? What, you know what I mean? Like there's no, the, the practice that caused the issue happened well before the person who was going to load it up. And well, may- and may, or maybe somebody is trying to save money and they're pouring from one bag uh-huh. into another. And again, I've got to, I've got to say, I really think that temperature it's temperature and time, right? I'll just yeah. flash back to the beginning in our discussion of freezers, right? It's temperature and time. So uh, the question is, how are they holding the cheese sauce? How did they have temperature? How was that temperature controlled? Was it checked? Was it monitored? Did they even know that? I mean, because honestly, as long as you, as long as that cheese sauce flows, that's all that really yep. matters. And and honestly, maybe uh, maybe if it's uh, you don't want it too runny, so you lower the temperature a little bit so that it comes out thicker, right? But that's uh, that's not a, that's not a good design, you know. Oh, um, yeah. Or, yeah. Or we we have a situation um, going back to the classic. Uh, annals of food safety where um, you've got somebody who walks in and says, I cu- I'm cooking with cheese sauce here all the time and it's so hot. Could you just turn it down? Yeah. Like, like I prefer having undercooked hamburgers or, you know, uh, what, you know, whatever, uh, you know, where we're jack in the box. There's all this documentation of, of actively not, uh, undercooking things. So, it, you know, it could be the, the fallout in response to someone's consumer preference of, that cheese sauce is too hot. Turn it down. Mm-hmm. Oh man, yeah, this is a fascinating one. I'm giving so after after we're done today, um, I'm I'm on my way to Denver, for, and you're on your way somewhere as well. Yes, Chicago, I'm on my way to Chicago. Yep. Yeah. And I'm I'm gonna be uh, giving a talk at the uh, Rocky Mountain Food Safety Conference, and I've been uh, uh, I, I was given free reign over what I wanted to talk, to talk about. Um, and so, so given I, that it's Rocky Mountains, you're going to talk about Rocky Mountain oysters? I'm not going to talk about Rocky Mountain oysters. What do I know about Rocky Mountain oysters, Don? Know. Nothing. But what I am going to talk about is botulism and cheese sauce. Nice. Well, we- and you know, you know, I'm going to be in Chicago, and I'm going to be teaching a challenge study workshop with a friend of the podcast, uh, Dr. Linda Harris. And you know who else is going to be teaching at that workshop? Uh, Kathy, Kathy Glass. Glass. <laughs> well, you let Kathy know that um, – 
please, what a fantastic uh, document she put together, uh, you know, 17 years ago and how it, it was it, – it, it, it resurfaced uh, with, this, uh, with this outbreak. I, I, would, Be- I, I venture to say that some of the discussion over dinner or at other times um, uh, will be on uh, this very subject. So, Well, good. And I, what I really appreciate because you know how I like the history of outbreaks, um, that she and, and Ellen Doyle put together three – like a list of three outbreaks with this type of – with this type of food, which is fast. I'd never until this outbreak, I I had no appreciation for the history of this, that we've got, um, 1951. Uh, there is an, um, an outbreak of botulism with cheese spread, um, in 1974, another cheese spread with onions implicated an outbreak in Argentina, six cases of botulism. Um, and that spread wasn't thermally processed to be commercially sterile or formulated specifically for safety, and then a third outbreak in Georgia in 1993, um, which was cheese sauce that was aseptically uh, canned. But you see the difference between 51 and 74 where, I mean, the the formulation and the technology that, that we would see now in 2017 is, is, is probably directly related to those two outbreaks. Well, right. And so, of course, what happens is when there's a problem, the industry figures out and changes the process or, or changes the formulation. And I suspect uh, – so this – the article uh, uh, by, by uh, Kathy and Ellen was uh, published in May 20, 2005, and it was corrected in June 2013. I think it's probably time for an update once we learn a little bit more about this outbreak. And, and that, that paragraph that you mentioned uh, will now include uh, a link to this current outbreak. Um, yeah, and I – again, uh, I'm really interested to learn. I mean I'm, it's, I'm sorry it's a tragedy, and, and at least one, one person has lost their life, but I'm very interested interested to learn uh, more about what caused it and and what we can do uh, to help uh, gas stations uh, sell safe nacho cheese. Yeah, absolutely. And how, how the difference is, uh, how, how we may learn from this. Yep. Sorry, I had a, I had a dog barking at the door I, again. I, I, but I, he's, I, yeah, I heard that. I think he just wants to get pet. So he's, he's going he's, he's gonna to be here in front of the pod, Stanley. Hi, Stanley. Uh, <laughs> He's uh, he's he's good good to go, um, so yeah, I mean fascinating fascinating stuff. And I know um, Nora Nerd uh, who will will blow her cover because I think it's on her Twitter account of Veronica Bryan, who I know will listen to this. She's been really following and interested in this in this outbreak and wanted to hear our thoughts on it. And I think she's been um, she's tweeted a couple of times about how she's surprised that there's not been um, an outbreak or a recall linked to the to the gels uh brand and and i think for for a lot of the reasons that you and i are talking about and 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 maybe maybe there will be um but the um you know it it may not have anything to do with the product or or how it's handled at the at the processing site yeah yes and and i would say that probably um the 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 producers i mean certainly if i'm working for the company that's producing this cheese sauce i am in panic mode and trying to figure out what's going on, but I suspect that it was a particular screw up at this uh, at this gas station, and not that 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 there needs to be a recall, right? So, but again, we don't know. Uh, Gels has apparently been quiet about this. I would say, I don't know what. So, what would your so if let's say Ben, let's say somebody yeah. from Gels calls you today and asks for your risk communication advice, what do you tell them? Um, should they say anything? I, so yeah, okay. This and but here's this is a great question. Here's the the thing that I would want to have in my back pocket. I'm I'm looking. You and I are just looking at pictures of boxes, right? Right. I, I wonder what the instructions are on this, 
if it says don't don't reuse once opened or keep refrigerated once opened for safety reasons if that's in multiple languages um i, I would want to know before i can really give that that full answer what what they have currently in their in their communications and if if they have if they're confident that that kind of information is well um if someone was to take it out of the box it would they would be well it would be well understood um I would also be interested in any of like sharing any of the data that they have, like from the risk communication standpoint on temperature abuse of this product and what happens to it. Cause I would assume that they've done shelf life studies uh, for it. You know, any data that is like, okay, someone really messes this up. They open it up. They, they leave it on the floor uh, for four days after they open it up, what happens to it and to be able to share all that so that they demonstrating that they know that not everything goes perfect all the time. And here are the things that we are engineering into the process. Yes. Um, I also uh, just sent you a text that um, Gels themselves. So I just Googled like Gels recalls, re- recalls <laughs> and turns out they had a recall in 2009 for their dispensers and uh, dispensers specifically, not for any safety reasons, but due to fire and burn hazards. So the, disp- the hazard is the dispenser's fan blade can come in contact with the heater coil, posing fire and burn hazards, hazards to co- consumers. So, um, they, you know, Gels uh, should have some institutional history on dealing with crisis and, and things like this. Where that, although this is their product, um, they're they're they must know how this stuff how this stuff happens and what to what to deal with it or what to do with it. Well, and um, now, so now I'm I am less willing to blame <laughs> it on the gas station and more willing to blame it on Gels. Okay, because. I see it's a it's a one one uh, one product solution, right? You buy the cheese sauce from them and you buy the dispensers from them. It looks like, yeah, right? that's what it looks like. They yep. sell not your cheese and they sell just dispensers. So if it is cleaning and sanitation and temperature control, unless unless it's possible that this particular gas station didn't want to buy the the dispenser and they were sort of cooking their own so to speak i don't know we just you know we 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 shouldn't speculate because we don't have information but what else are we going to do it's a podcast right 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 and and hopefully this i mean this is a call for for us you know we've got um we know we have listeners all over the the country um and or all over the world uh but if there's anybody in that uh um sacramento area that knows a little bit more about this and can share with us sort of more public information let's let's have an update next uh next time yeah so yeah tell us tell us more about if you have you you have you uh are you a fan of gels uh nacho cheese uh dispensers and 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 sauce so yeah tell us more tell us more yeah yeah and anything yeah so oh fascinating fascinating and tragic i mean so that that's the one thing that you know we've talked about the the process here um i want to highlight um you mentioned sort of the the illness but there was um there are two, two really tragic cases that I've seen here, um, from just break break sort of over the last week. Let me uh, let me find them here. There's ten hospitalizations now. Um, 
one uh, looks like potentially one death. Yep. At least that's that's linked to this. Um, CNN. This is from a, a CNN story. Um, CNN affiliate KTXL reports that one woman, Lavinia Kelly, was reportedly hospitalized after putting the nacho cheese sauce on some Dorito chips on April 21st. Um, and this this is the kind of stuff like I, I I've mentioned how I am totally not like botulism is the thing that bothers me the most. Um, my phone rings, quote, my phone rings and I pick it up, the, it, pick up the phone and it's her. And she can't articulate a word. Her sister, Teresa Kelly co- told KTXL. She said that at first she thought her sister was going to die. She spent more than three weeks in intensive care unit. So this is the kind of stuff where, again, we, we, we throw out the number 10, but each of those 10 people, have families that are dealing with this stuff, right? Like the, and, and that, that who knows what small mistake might've led to this, like, or, or, or what, right? We just, we just don't know. We just don't know about it, but the consequence here of, you know, these people are going to need, they may never recover from it. Like they, this may just, um, this may just be something that they deal with for, for their entire um, entire lives. Um, three hours ago, uh, there was a story that was posted. Um, 37-year-old man from Antioch, uh, Mart- Mart- Martin or Martin Galindo, died in hospital in San Francisco on Thursday night after contracting what his family said is a rare case of botulism. Uh, KGO reported he contacted con- contracted uh, botulism from nacho cheese bought at this gas station. They haven't re- this that you know, that death hasn't been confirmed yet. But but if this is you now, you you've got you know, uh, it's just terrible, terrible stuff. Yeah. So, and I uh, will also link to, um, uh, if you go to the Gell's website, uh, there's a page called, uh, dispensers, uh, and you can lease, uh, dispensers, uh, it says, uh, Gell's dispensers are placed in your business for a one-time lease fee. Unlike typical lease agreements, agreements, there will be no ongoing lease payments. So in other words, I don't know how understand, I guess they still own it, <laughs> it's which like one-time lease. Well, yeah. but here's the thing. If, if it's, if it's a le- if it's leased to me and there's a food poisoning problem oh yeah i'm, still, I, I'm in, I'm in know, the game i i think uh, yeah you know i was thinking about this it's a really good because marler's involved right and that yep. means that there's lawsuits and i mean how much money could this gas station possibly have right so you sue them they go out of business but but there's bigger fish up the chain right so and i don't uh, gills is obviously not a massive company but bigger, man, bigger oh, than bigger than the gas station bigger than the gas station Oh man, yeah, good, good point. So here, you know, to just uh, fully complete our speculation circle, now <laughs> now you've got now you've got a, a potential situation if that if that is the case where um, it's no longer just what how did you handle the um, you know did we give you enough information on how to handle the cheese, but are we giving you enough information on how to clean and sanitize and use this unit that you yep. lease from us that we yep. still own? Yep. Ho ho ho. Scary, scary stuff. Um, so just a like quick uh, reminder, Don. Mm-hmm. I have a fairly hard out at oh. ten thirty. No, no, and I and I, and I got a, a hard out uh, at the same time. So, uh, oh, so let's uh, let's let's wrap this up. <laughs> let's let's button it up, as they say. <laughs> as they say. Um, I, there's one one more thing uh, I wanted to, I wanted to, before we leave. Okay, because it comes from. It comes from my my native my native town, Toronto, Ontario. Don, pressing science question that is in the Toronto Metro. 
from last week. Can you get food poisoning twice in a row from the same food? A pressing science question. Are your leftovers out to kill you? Um, calling Betteridge's rule, law, sorry. Um, so the question that comes to the Toronto Metro is, can you get food poisoning twice in a short period if you eat the exact same food again in the same form as leftovers from GB in Toronto? Uh, um, the answer here is uh, from uh, uh, Jenna Buck, which is weird because it's the same. Maybe Jenna Buck, who's writing this article, is also the person who asked it. Oh, yes, never mind. As I read the first line, this issue is personal to me. I sent this question to myself because I wanted an excuse <laughs> to research it. Um, a few years, a few weeks ago, the universe punched me punished me for making a joke in this column about eating raw cookie dough. I came down with a miserable stomach bug. I haven't been around any sick people or eaten anything suspect that I could recall. The cause was mystery until two weeks later when I had a flash of insight. I'd eaten cookie dough that contained raw eggs, blah, blah, blah. So um, anyway, she asked the question of could I get sick from the same – thing twice of a guy named dr bruce valance the stomach bug guru at british columbia's children's hospital depends on the timing and the germ but if you're exposed again after recovery you'll likely get sick again valance said in an email adding it's very difficult to develop complete immunity against germs that attack the gut um, however, any barf-inducing bug you catch, salmonella norovirus, has a unique, unique genetic signature that your body learns to recognize and fight off. I want to point out here that, again, from the microbiology standpoint, when we get all nerdy on this, if I think about leftover foods, I don't think about vegetative cells as much. I really think about toxin production or maybe something like, like Staph aureus um, or Clostridium perfringens. And if you're going to eat food that's got toxin in it that's produced by these these bugs that you're not going to get um any acquired immunity to toxins well and i'm not sure you get acquired immunity to salmonella or norovirus or whatever right Right. i'm not even sure that that's true um so i mean i understand how the immune system works but i'm not i'm not sure that this uh i'm not sure that this is correct so yeah well and and this is where things get a little like where, where it talks about attenuated. So the the last uh, paragraph, second last paragraph says, you'll probably get sick, but not as badly as the first time around, Valance explained. I don't. I'm not, don't, I'm not so, sure. So. And I don't know. This whole story is a little bit suspect because uh, she said she instantly felt extremely sick and was sick for 48 hours. So I... I, I don't know. There's a lot. There's a lot to scratch your head about this article. Um, I, the first thing that occurred to me, though, is um, that that she reached out to uh, uh, Bruce Valanche, um, and I don't know if you know who Bruce Valanche is. Uh, Bruce oh. Valanche is a is a punchline um, on Roderick <laughs> on the Line. Um, no. Uh, yeah. So Bruce Valanche is an American comedy writer, songwriter, and actor. So um, best known for his four year stint on Hollywood Squares. Oh, wait a second. I. I know that guy. Uh, I think it's it's spelled differently, but yeah, don't yes, ask it's him. It's spelled it's spelled differently, but it's close enough. So that's anyway, good. We'll good. we'll link yeah. to uh, Bruce Valanche's uh, Wikipedia page. The Aristocrats. Oh, <laughs> do you know? That? Yes, I do. Oh. <laughs> uh, it's uh. one of my favorite documentaries I've ever watched. <laughs> um, so here we go, uh, Don. Thanks again. That went extremely quick today. It did. Uh, it felt like we only talked about one thing, and we did. Uh, we talked about a few things, but uh, what a great hour and a half. Um, thanks. Uh, someone did uh, send us a message saying that uh, about uh, rating us in uh, iTunes, and I don't have it uh, right in front of me. But um, 
someone said, if you notice, uh, foods, the FDA, did I, did you get this one too? I did. I did. Yes. If you notice the FDA food safety, um, podcast has, um, more than one, one star rating. And while we may not be, have as many stars as in ratings as they do, we have all five star ratings. So good, good for us. Yeah. Yes. Um, um, but please go rate us, send us feedback. We really appreciate all the, um, comments and, and emails that we, that we get. Um, cause it, it definitely adds to, to the podcast itself. So, uh, we, we appreciate it. Uh, and Don? Please, please sending us, please keep sending us your questions because uh, we do, we do love listener feedback. Absolutely. Um, Don, have a great uh, great trip to Chicago. You have a great trip to the Rocky Mountains. I will. And uh, we'll talk in a couple of weeks. Sounds good. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was fun. Good. Thanks for I, thanks for having that talk. Yeah, that was good. That was a good one. Um, okay, so let's look at the week of the fifth. All should be good. I'm not going anywhere. We should be. I, oh, sorry, that's not entirely true. Monday the fifth or Tuesday the sixth are are, wi- are fairly wide open. Okay. Um, also for me. Okay. So I have uh, an extension meeting in the afternoon of the 5th, which means I'll be on campus uh, the 6th. Uh, I'm free. I would be free all afternoon. Would Do you have – so if we did it um, Monday the 5th, like 11 to 1? No, sorry. You, you started earlier, like uh, 9 to 11? Yep. Okay. Done. Let's do that. FST. One twenty-seven, I think. Yep. Nine, yeah, and that'll give me time to. Uh, yeah, that'll be good. And I'll just need to uh, pack my microphone to go to work because I'll be at work that day. Perfect. Unless I record from home and then drive to work, that's a possibility. Yeah, that'll give you enough early time. They could do that, right? Because you wouldn't have to yeah. give me an hour or so to get there. Yeah. Um, cool. And I sent you a bunch of links. The only thing I couldn't yep. find is the, um, Marissa Bunning kimchi thing. If I can find it in the next, I have it somewhere in my email. I just uh, couldn't that's, find it. That's fine. Yeah. We, we can, we can just link to the, uh, we can just link to their, uh, that, that PDF. Okay. 
Um, cool. Okay. All right. Sounds good. So this, this one's this, yours. This one's right? mine, and uh, I will uh, hopefully get get it posted uh, real soon. So I will uh, get started on this uh, as soon as I get to the airport. Awesome. Thanks, Don. That was great. All right. Talk to you soon. Talk, talk to you later. Bye. Bye-bye.